If you're looking for something to do this May 30th through June 2nd, why don't you join us at CrimeCon in Nashville, Tennessee? We can all rub elbows with people like John Walsh, John Douglas, and Chris Hansen. Come and visit Murder in the Rain on Podcast Row, where we'll be sitting next to some of our own favorite podcasts. You can get 10% off your tickets by using code RAIN at checkout at CrimeCon.com. I'm Emily Rowney. And I'm Alicia Holland. This is Bill Camp, the voice of Forensic Files 2 on HLN, and you're listening to Murder in the Rain. I heard about today's case years ago, and I thought I knew it pretty well, but my opinion on it has changed due to some perspective. This can happen in life. We get a little bit of new information, a little understanding, or hear a new point of view that changes our mind. Some of us don't have that happen very often. Others, like myself, find it happening quite a bit over recent years. On paper, something makes sense. It's logical, it's organized, it's professional, but it lacks empathy. And once you add in that missing piece of the human voice, it can get murky. That's what happened to me with this case. I heard from the people close to it. I heard the real voices of the people affected by it and the person who caused it. You see, there are at least two sides to every story. And with a violent crime, those two sides can have hundreds of voices and points of view. People who feel violated, people who feel unheard. And when you open yourself to hearing it and open yourself to empathizing with it, it can be eye-opening. In February of 1990, a Beaverton teen was lured from her house by a school friend, a former boyfriend. He raped her, he murdered her, and he hid her body in the hopes that he could get away with it. What ensued after the murder of 16-year-old Aaron Reynolds was a complex court case that brought both families in and out of court for decades, while Oregon changed the sentencing of Conrad Engweiler multiple times and eventually set him free. When Aaron Tona Reynolds was a kid, she wanted to be many things. A nurse, a teacher, a marine biologist, or maybe she'd drop out of school and become a clown. That's a little joke she shared with her family. As she got older, she loved things like poetry, a pastime she shared with her father. When she was diagnosed with melanoma, a type of cancer, at the age of 14, there were worries that she would never get to continue with her poetry or grow up to be any of those things she dreamed of. But she beat it. In fact, Erin was back at school as a junior at Sunset High School in Beaverton, Oregon, just days after she had reconstructive surgery to her head, and she was deemed healthy and free of cancer. Erin was new there at Sunset. She had transferred from Grant High School in Portland. Despite being the new kid, she quickly gained many friends. She is described as funny, sweet, a good student with a nurturing personality. This is likely why she bonded with another new student, Conrad Engweiler, a privileged kid from Lake Oswego who had some struggles he was dealing with. The pair met in the fall of 1989. Conrad was a year younger than her, but was born on the same day, April 1st. They were both new, they both had divorced parents, and I think that really helps bond people together faster. At the time, most would agree Conrad had the 90s looks anyone would have fallen for. He was blonde and blue-eyed, handsome, and a bit of a bad boy. Aaron took a liking. 
The pair went on a few dates and even made out a few times. But as Conrad got into more and more trouble at school, started drinking and skipping class, Erin started to distance herself from him. She didn't fully cut him off, but she wasn't dating him anymore. Conrad Engweiler had some serious issues even by the young age of 15. At 11, he was busted for stealing his grandmother's credit cards. He lied all the time. He drank alcohol and even did drugs. After spending his childhood in Lake Oswego, his parents got a divorce and he ended up having to change schools and go to Sunset. I think he struggled with this. He ran away dozens of times, sneaking off to his dad's house where he could break in and hang out and drink. Oftentimes, Conrad would ask Aaron to drive him to his dad's and he'd hand over a bit of gas money. She'd hung out there a few times before, too, when it looked like they may become a couple. But after she broke things off, she didn't drive him as often, only on occasion. On February 21st, 1990, Conrad had missed yet another day of school. He skipped the day like he had for several weeks by then. He knew his time was up living according to his own rules because he was on his last warning. One more infraction and he was going to get placed in juvie again, likely for more than just a weekend. If he were to return home that evening, he was in for it with his parents, so he started plotting. As he wandered around downtown Beaverton, he formulated his next move. Aaron had always been there for him, and this time he would really take advantage. The plan he had was to steal her car and head to Mexico. So he waited outside of the Reynolds home, biding his time until Aaron showed up after she returned from school. Once she arrived home, Aaron was approached by Conrad. He asked her, like he had on other occasions, if she could drive him to his dad's on Skyline Boulevard. He lived in a large house on the west side of Forest Park. On the drive, Aaron addressed Conrad's absences, telling him he was being an idiot for missing school. Once they arrived at his father's house, he asked her to wait in the car so he could enter the house through a back window and grab some gas money. When he returned, he didn't have money. Instead, he demanded her car keys so that he could run away. She told him no several times, but he started to grow angry, screaming for her to give him the keys. She started to yell back, and that's when things took a turn. He began to kick through the car door at her and eventually forced her out of the car. Nearby were some sapling trees that Conrad's father had put in. Somewhere in those trees was a piece of rope and a knife. Conrad knew they were there. He had previously used the knife to break into the window. As he was fighting with Aaron, he moves to the trees and cuts a piece of the rope, thinking he could use it to tie her up and steal her car. She now realizes what he's planning to do when she sees the rope, so she begins to scream for help. To stop her screaming, he strikes her in the head and she begins to bleed. Aaron tries to run away from him, so he chases her down, still demanding the keys, which by now have dropped into the yard, a yard scattered with clumps of snow, making it very hard to find anything. He struck her repeatedly until she stopped trying to run from him. They then began searching the yard looking for the keys that she had dropped. As they searched the yard and the embankment close by, Aaron begs for Conrad to let her go, even telling him that she won't tell anyone what happened. After hearing her say this multiple times, he grows angrier. Rather than continue to search for the keys, he grabs Aaron and tells her to give him oral sex. She says no, but he threatens to continue to hit her if she doesn't comply. So she complies. After he completes, he tries to hotwire the car without success, making him even angrier. 
He then demands for Aaron to get into the back seat of the car where he proceeds to rape her. She's crying and begging for him to let her go, but he starts to get frantic because he knows his father will be home any minute. Rather than let her go, he grabs the rope that he retrieved from the yard and wraps it around her neck and strangles her. He then drags her now lifeless body to the backyard where he proceeds to hit her repeatedly in the head with a vodka bottle, presumably a bottle retrieved from the yard. He then covers her with a pile of yard debris on the embankment near the house. When Erin wasn't home within an hour of her curfew, her parents reported her missing. But it wasn't until the next day that anyone discovered where she was. Conrad's father woke up to find that his son was nowhere in sight, and when he went outside, he noticed a strange vehicle, a 1980 Chevrolet Monza. He called police to describe the car and notify them that his son was missing. Police arrived and linked the car to Aaron, who had recently been reported missing. It wasn't long before they discovered drag marks that led from the front into a ravine in the backyard where Aaron's body was hidden in the pile of yard debris. Aaron's autopsy revealed that her body was covered in contusions and scrapes. She had fought. The staples that had been placed in her head after her reconstructive surgery had completely come out due to the brutal attack. She had been wearing pantyhose, and they were returned to her body inside out. Same with her underwear, both of which were ripped. This information indicated that she did not put her own clothes on. Someone else redressed her. The medical examiner found that she had semen in her throat, her anus, and her vagina. She also had damage to her vagina, all injuries and evidence consistent with trauma due to rape and sodomization. The rope used to strangle her was wrapped around her neck three times. She was dead when the trauma to her head was inflicted with the vodka bottle. It's like the only saving grace. Yeah, but it just... I mean, it, all of it's, it's this horrible, level but... of why. Why such violence? To the one person that gave a shit about you. You know, it's um, what you said about him reminded me a lot of a lot of my students through the years. And it's like maybe the anger just needed somewhere to go. I know for most people, adults, children, otherwise, you do tend to let out emotions with those you feel safest with. Maybe that was part of it because... It was her. He felt some sort of safety with her or anger towards her about everything. I mean, it sounds like he had so we're a gonna, lot going on. We're going to listen to some clips of him talking. And I don't think I actually pulled this clip, but they address like you've never been. Viol this was his first violent offense. Mm. And he said his reasoning was he had never been caught during any of his crimes. When he stole, he was sneaky about it. No one ever saw him do it. She was the only person that ever witnessed him committing a crime. And he thought that had something to do with it. Hmm. And they're like, no, I don't no. think so. Um, and so the, it was, and we'll talk about this later, but it was a struggle to get him to admit to what could have caused such anger. He doesn't yeah, know. It's strange. It's almost, I mean, obviously some mental health things going on, but also, um, yeah, just that closeness and, and who knows what his family life was like. And maybe because she was kind to him, it made him upset. You know, people that where it's an intimacy and intimacy makes you feel um, kind of opposite of what it's supposed to can happen. But it sounds like there's a lot going on. And that's, yeah, that's awful. All of it. Especially surviving, you know, you hear kids being sick, which is always bad enough, but to hear like she fought through it and got this surgery and survived and then 
to have this happen. Mm-hmm. It, it's somehow, even though it's so heinous, it somehow makes it so it's much It's heart-wrenching. Worse. She literally thought she could have died, yeah. survived it, only yeah. to be murdered by someone that she knew. You may not cared trusted, about. you cared about him. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, he had red flags and that's why she started to avoid him, but not red flags that yeah. would have indicated he was going to hurt her. Yeah. So that's what makes it so hard. Uh, and, you know, for many reasons for the family, but that I think is like, could, did yeah. it, no one noticed because he had no flags yeah. of that type. Well, and also at that age, that is when some more intense mental health issues can present itself. So it's like he could have been chemically, you know, going through puberty to some degree or something. And then those conditions in your brain, just the chemicals don't mix right. And then then now he's violent, you know, out of nowhere because things changed in his brain. Who knows? When investigators searched the yard, they found a dildo hidden among the trash and yard debris. Angweiler was asked about this item several times over the years, and to this day, he claims it had nothing to do with the crime and that near his house was a homeless camp, which I find hard to believe. This was a house in a very nice neighborhood. I don't know if it's like nestled up against the forest and maybe that's what he meant, Um, but he claims it was likely trash from them. Now, it's unclear if DNA was ever found on that item. I don't have access to that report to know that. I bring it up only because it seems like it would be an indicator of a planned attack. Now, along with the rope and the knife that were conveniently stored nearby, this is all important because this would mean premeditation, which is an aggravated charge. Mm -hmm. And Conrad Engweiler has claimed none of this was planned, so it shouldn't be aggravated, right? So that is something that came up in court because he does eventually get charged with aggravated charges. I wonder, too, what his perception of what premeditated is, because he might think it's you set out to do that. And he was just avoiding going home because he didn't want to get in trouble. But even just grabbing rope is premeditated, you know. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's maybe like, well, maybe you didn't plan for a long time, but even if you brought a weapon... That's premeditation. After police found Aaron, Conrad Engweiler was later found at his mother's lawyer's house in Lake Oswego. He was arrested and taken into custody where he began telling police a contrived story. First, he claimed that a drug dealer that goes by the name of Rooster killed Aaron by shooting her, even going as far as trying to convince a friend to stab him to make the story look more believable. That was, of course, easily debunked as she died of asphyxiation. So then he goes on to say that the day of the murder, he was using LSD and that when he attacked Aaron, he was hallucinating, meaning this wasn't planned. It was out of nowhere due to a drug fueled stupor. This was a lie. And over the years, he admitted to it and later even told the parole board that he lied about being on drugs and that he was completely sober at the time. Now, I think this goes to show He was a compulsive liar and he wanted to do anything to not be involved, but some crazy non-logic there. Yeah, to go with a gunshot when you know that there is no gun involved. And I don't know if that speaks on his behalf or not. Like, Mm, Does it it show that like he doesn't have the thinking capacity? Does it show, yeah, that he's this pathological liar? And at the time, I'm like, did he consider that now? If you saw him speak, and you'll hear him, mm-hmm. he is very articulate, very intelligent, and I can't imagine that just came with age. I think right. he was always smart, right? Which makes me think that was planned. Mm-hmm. I don't know why he would have said that, but 
maybe to make someone think that he's not capable of it. Yeah. 15 years old. If you're planning ahead like that, it's very alarming. Yeah. Conrad Engweiler was convicted of two counts of aggravated murder, rape, and sodomy, and he was sentenced to life in April of 1991. As he was not yet 18, he was too young for the death penalty, so he was given life with an option for parole after a minimum of 30 years. That was a maximum sentence for his crimes. The judge, Kimberly C. Frankel, said that his crimes were, quote, the willful acts of a vicious child carried out with the cunning of a man. And I think that is so accurate. Mm -hmm. So accurate. He was a child. He had childish emotions, childish reactions, but he was plotting. He had backup stories. Right. I mean, he was really giving this some thought. The legal proceedings that followed were a pretty big deal here in Oregon and were quite eventful. The sentencing was actually slightly delayed because in court, Aaron's stepbrother Brent attacked Angweiler. He leapt from the back of the courtroom and got quite a few swipes in. Angweiler needed a bit of medical attention due to some bruising and scratches on his face. And you can actually see these in some of the photos in the newspaper. Which it's kind of shocking that doesn't happen more often. When it's when it's so black and white, when it's so clear that that's what Yeah, there's happened. no question. Mm-hmm. I, I would have a hard time restraining myself. Yeah, especially he is a teenage boy, too. So it's like, yeah. well, I don't know how old he was at the time, but you've got these like raging hormones yeah. and this wrong has been done to your sister. Your brain isn't done developing, so you're not processing things as you would as an adult. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Now, that event wasn't the only thing that brought attention to the court proceedings. Angweiler became part of what is known as the Oregon Five. This is a group of teenage offenders who were all convicted of aggravated murder. These five individuals had quite the back and forth in their court sentencing. It would change over time due to the Oregon guidelines on life sentences for juvenile offenders and aggravated murder. This, of course, meant ongoing involvement with legal teams and the victims' families. Engweiler's original sentence given in 1991 was life with a hard minimum of 30 years before parole. In 1999, the Oregon Board of Parole made a change that would bump that requirement to a 40-year minimum. This was in effect until the Supreme Court eventually struck it down in 2011. They basically said that is not something you can do. Like, that's out of your control. Why would you do that? Mm. So that meant the Oregon Five all had to have their sentences revisited. This led for the opportunity in 2012 for Engweiler to get an estimated parole date of 2018, which would be a 28-year term rather than the 40 or even the original 30. When he was first incarcerated, Engweiler called McLaren Youth Correctional Facility home. McLaren is located in Woodburn and houses about 271 male youth. He was housed in the gear complex, which is deemed a severe unit where violent offenders are kept under higher security. While at McLaren, it's noted that Engweiler bragged about his crime and what he did to Aaron. Eventually, he was moved to the Oregon State Penitentiary once he was of age. There he worked hard. He got an education. He started working as a legal assistant, something he did for 14 years. He participated in therapy and groups to help with his sobriety. He even helped mentor new inmates and offered them legal advice. He actually earned the nickname Jailhouse Lawyer because he learned to write his own legal documentation. He was definitely seen as intelligent and helpful, and he did not cause trouble. 
kind of interesting, though, that he still went down a path of intelligence and power mm-hmm. and uh, maybe that ability to um, understand things better than other people or hold things over other people's heads. Yeah, so actually, we will get into that in the discussion. Went part. down that narcissism pathway. Absolutely. You nail on head right there. Angweiler applied for parole multiple times. As I mentioned, due to the penalty change in 2012, it was deemed that he may be eligible for parole by February of 2018. But he appealed it, which brought the Reynolds family back in for another parole hearing, one that would allow him to get out much earlier than anticipated. We've previously done some speculation on what goes on in a parole hearing, but neither of us have really had any experience with one. This case taught me a ton. Aaron's family shared with me a recording of Engweiler's exit interview. How it works is the family is notified when the exit interview is scheduled. And so what and that's what we typically call a parole hearing. So you'll hear me use those interchangeably. There's usually someone in the victim's family who is appointed the primary contact, and they're notified if anything eventful comes up, like an early parole. That person for Aaron Reynolds is her older sister, Beth. Her family is very involved in the post-conviction proceedings because despite Angweiler being punished for his crime, it's a lifelong commitment for justice. Her family is there to ensure that Aaron's justice doesn't just evaporate that they'll always be there to speak for her and that she isn't forgotten because of a bunch of laws and statutes, you know, because those change Mm -hmm. and that could really impact the family. Prior to the exit interview, the public has the opportunity to send in letters. This can be in support of the inmate and the release or in support of keeping the inmate in prison. In this particular exit interview, which took place in May of 2014, there were 50 letters sent asking the board to keep Conrad Engweiler in prison and not grant him parole. The beginning of the exit interview is dedicated to going over what artifacts are being considered by the board. This includes letters from the public, the psychological evaluations of the inmate, and the doctor's basic findings from those. And then they move into allowing the inmate to speak to their crime and answer questions that the board might have for them. Now, this is to determine if they're suitable to actually be granted parole. For those of you who are Patreon members, we're going to post the entire recording of the exit interview. This is two separate recordings and about three and a half hours. I listened to all of it. It's really good and, and informative, but you know, you might not want to listen <laughs> to a hearty listen. It, it is a very hearty listen. So because of that, I wanted to share a few parts so everyone can kind of understand what goes on in that exit interview. We're going to start with Angweiler's words. The board asks him to go through the crime itself. My understanding is their goal is to understand if he recognizes what motivated him to commit the crime, if he's able to recognize an accurate portrayal of what what happened. Basically, can you admit to what you've done? Whether he shows empathy and remorse to his victims and then decide whether or not he has a present emotional disturbance. So take a listen. I chased her down. Um, I struck her repeatedly until she stopped. Um, and then she did. I brought her back to my, um, back to the car, um, screaming at her, uh, told her to give me the keys, and Aaron said she didn't have the keys at that point. Um, 
I then demanded that she give me the keys. I believe I hit her um, one or two more times. She said she didn't. She was crying. Um, we went around. I tried to look inside the car. Um, I pulled and walked around the embankment. Um, uh, it couldn't locate it. So back inside the car at that point, um, it was cold. It was February. Uh, there was snow scattered. Um, so we stayed in there. Uh, she kept telling me um, she wouldn't tell on me. She just wanted to leave. Um, she was confused. She tried to talk me down. Um, when I hit her, her, the side of her head had begun bleeding. And she was pressing a towel to her head. She was trying to convince me to um, trying to convince me to stop. Um, I was getting more and more angry with her. Um, I, every time she said that um, she wouldn't tell, I was getting more angry, more agitated. Um, I told her at that point to um, to give me head, um, and uh, she initially said absolutely no. Um, I told her to do it, or I would hit her again. Um, she did it. Um, I didn't, um, was even more angry. Um, she asked at that point if I would leave her alone. Um, I told her uh, to shut up, give me the keys. Um, I tried to hot-wire hot the car. Uh, I had no idea how to do it. Um, and the we, I was arguing back with her again. Um, told her at that point to get in the back seat of the car, and it's there that I raped her. Um, after that incident, we sat in the front seat. Uh, Aaron was crying. Um, I got out of the car. Um, at this point, I was anticipating my father or anybody driving home. Um, I couldn't locate the keys um, anywhere. Uh, we were standing by. When we ran, there was a piece of the rope um, that was over by the driveway, the walkway up to the top, and I had Aaron standing there. I believe um, I, told, I told Aaron at that point to put her hands behind her back, and she asked me not to. Um, and in a fit of rage, I flipped the rope around her neck and strangled her to death. Okay. Uh, I I'm not done yet, if you don't mind, ma'am. Okay. The crime wasn't finished there. Okay. I then dragged Darren behind my father's house um, and um, behind where there was a slash pit. Um, I then hit her with a vodka bottle that was back there in the head multiple times. Um, then I returned to the front, uh, to the front of the house, um, and I figured out. I tried again to hotwire it. Um, I put, um, yeah. I then left that area and flagged down a man who was driving past and lied to him and said I needed help to um, get the car out of there. 
Um, and that's where I left uh, at that point. What you don't hear is the several questions from multiple board members trying to understand the motivation of the crime. Angweiler basically says the crime was born from rage and anger, and it just escalated. This confuses them as he has no previous violent crimes on his record. And I can tell this isn't exactly what the board wanted to hear. I think they expected more detail and honesty around like what caused it. But then again, that might be all it was. We might not know. We have many times talked about the gradients of evil and how the lower end of the scale is impulsive murders. And they may not reoffend, right? They've done it out of anger and maybe they never do it again. That's usually the case when it's, you know, you walk in on a lover or something and you. Also, if you look back, if I asked you right now to explain the logic and emotions and feelings surrounding the dumbest thing you did when you were 15. I have no reasoning. You you can't. So that's not ex- excusing him, but it's also like that was that's a different brain. At the, and you I mean, as someone that's been around a lot of teenage boys whose brains were um not cooperating with them well, you can't get an answer. And a lot of times I've had kids that like after a violent thing or um, you know, a a bad choice, they're crying and they're like, I'm sorry. And then you try to work through that and talk through it and you can't get an answer, even in that moment. But I, so, I think what you said earlier about maybe his anger escalated because this is a person mm-hmm. close to him. I think that's more along the lines of what they were expecting to hear. Yeah. Is have you been introspective enough to understand why you were so angry mm-hmm. and why it hurt? Yeah. Or like where did it if you're in therapy, he should be able to say, Well, I've learned that because my dad was this and my mom was that and I was seeking attention this way. And they did not get that. Yeah. And they did address why are you so monotone and emotionless? Yeah. And, you know, he had an explanation for that. But when you hear how he just talks about the crime like he's reading it from a paper and it's so dry, that doesn't give you a lot of faith that someone has remorse and empathy. Um You know, and he says, I'm holding it together. And his lawyer says, you know, everyone processes emotion differently. But uh, I I learned a lot from listening to that. Mm -hmm. Now, we also have to keep in mind, he has narcissistic tendencies, a mixed personality disorder. And there is a chance he falls higher on that scale. Like, he could possibly reoffend. Even one of his psychiatrists, Dr. McGuffin, says he's antisocial lacks empathy and could easily abuse drugs and alcohol again and that Angweiler has a quote moderate likelihood of violent recidivism which means reoffending. so i think basically the perfect scenario to have him explode would be he hits a rough patch his his sobriety slips and he gets angry at someone and it escalates and he hurts them so is that enough right. to keep someone behind bars is the question and aaron's family definitely thinks so yeah, if someone's saying moderate, that's that's too much. You know, if a doctor is saying there's a moderate chance of that, that's, you know, uh, prison system's so hard. The next recording we're going to share is one that I found very powerful and moving, and that is the victim impact statement from Aaron's sister, Beth. To quote Beth from an interaction I had with her, get your tissues ready. 
This is emotional, I'll warn you, but it gives you some idea of what a parole hearing is actually like. It goes from factual statements of the crime and findings to legalese from lawyers trying to move the board with the law, but also there can be hours of emotional victim impact statements because crime doesn't end with a conviction. This family has spent over 30 years being constantly reminded what happened to their child and their sister. It isn't just the law that says this and that. There are dozens, if not more, people who are victimized by one person's actions, and they get to share their perspective, too. Here's Beth. I'm not used to speaking about myself in a situation such as this. I've always been used to speaking about and for my sister. However, this time I want to let you know my story. It all started 24 years, two months and 22 days ago, or February 22nd, 1990, the day that changed my life. I remember that day so clearly. That was the day that I was told my sister was murdered, found dead in a ravine behind a home on Skyline Boulevard, tossed over the hillside into her ravine, into a ravine just like yard debris. My world changed in an instant. The second I heard those heartbreaking words, Aaron was found dead. I remember screaming and falling to the ground. I was told I fainted. I remember that life had suddenly felt like it was going in slow motion. I remember the news on TV. I remember my infant son crying because his mom was crying. I remember crying so much I could barely see because my eyes were so swollen. I remember not sleeping, not eating, not wanting to be around anyone, just crying. I remember going home to my family home, walking in the door and instantly feeling the difference. The house was filled with teary-eyed, sniffling people. The air in the house felt so heavy. I looked around. I saw police tape hanging in front of Aaron's bedroom door. I couldn't breathe. It was all so much. I remember her funeral. I remember the people that got up and spoke about what a wonderful and beautiful person Aaron was. I remember hearing her cancer doctor get up and speak and hearing his voice crack when he spoke of what an amazing person Aaron was. I remember the procession to the cemetery, standing next to the coffin that held her body. I remember them lowering her down, her casket down into the ground and covering it with the earth. I remember not wanting to leave there that day because I didn't want her to be alone. I remember how the days just drug on. I was living my life in a dark cloud. I became very ill. I suffered from many medical issues. I was diagnosed with several medical issues, 
severe depression and anorexia being two of them. I remember the days, the weeks, the months, and the years that have gone past since that day. I remember how sick I was in the years that I battled those diseases, only for the depression to keep returning, time after time, knocking me down, haunting me. I felt like I was having a horrible nightmare that just kept repeating itself but wouldn't stop. This was the new life I was forced to live. The life sentence that was handed down to me and my family on February 22, 1990. I became a very different person that day, never really trusting anyone. I sheltered my children growing up from many things. Always telling them, don't trust people. You can't even trust the people that you think are your friends. I've lived the last 15 years constantly on edge, calling the parole board every few months to see if that monster is filing any petitions. I Google his name consistently every three weeks or so to see if he's filed anything outside the parole board that I may not have caught. Constantly worried he'll file something new and drag my family through hell again, drag us back to some type of hearing, court appearance, a meeting of some kind, putting us through hell and forcing us to relive Aaron's horrible murder time and time again for 24 years now. That's what he's done. We've not had a chance to live life the way we want, to remember Aaron in all the happy and beautiful ways that we want to, because we're constantly fighting to keep the monster who stole her life behind bars where he belongs. Here we are again, the pain, the depression, the anxiety, the sleepless nights, the swollen eyes, they've all come back. It seems as though it's been that way for two and a half years. It's been constant, a constant fight to keep a murderer behind bars. That just doesn't seem right. We shouldn't have to fight to keep him locked up. That monster raped, sodomized, and murdered my sister. He stole her life, and he stole my family's life. Replacing our life lives with a life that we didn't want, a life that we have nothing but a choice, no choice to live, a life we have to live without Aaron, because that monster took it upon himself to decide the fate of our Aaron. He decided with his own two hands that she did not get to be alive any longer. That in itself should decide his fate. The fact that he took a life with his own two hands willingly, completely lucid, and without any care about the beautiful person he was taking the life of. That should be enough to keep him behind bars forever. He's not the kind of person who ever deserves to be set free. He's a manipulating, sociopathic narcissist. He's done, always done all he can to manipulate any situation in an attempt to get his way. This will never change. He's just had many years of practice. With Mother's Day around the corner, are you thinking about a truly special gift for your mom or the motherly figure in your life? Let me tell you about mylifeinabook.com. 
It's a unique service that turns your mom's life stories into a beautiful book. Pretty cool, right? Here's how it works. Every week, mylifeinabook.com will send your recipient a question via email. These can be pre-written questions about, for example, your mom's life or any custom questions that you want to ask. And then she can either type her response or record her voice. And mylifeinabook.com compiles all of her responses into a beautiful keepsake book. And guess what? They can even create an audiobook using her voice recordings. It's like preserving her voice and her stories forever. Imagine discovering stories about her youth, adventures, and the challenges she overcame. This book becomes a legacy, something you and future generations can treasure forever. Your mom's given you a lifetime of stories. This is your chance to give her a way to share them. Obviously, we love anything surrounding storytelling. It's what we do. So to be able to gift this to my mom, to not only hear her stories, but the stories of my grandparents and other family members, it will create a cherished gift for all of us to enjoy. Check out mylifeinabook.com and use the code RAIN at checkout for 10% off. Create an unforgettable gift for your mom this Mother's Day. That's mylifeinabook.com and use the code RAIN for 10% off today. Armoire makes getting dressed easy. With a clothing rental membership from Armoire, build the perfect wardrobe with brands that are high quality, unique, and recommended just for you. All you have to do is take a five-minute style quiz and select items from your dynamic, personalized closet. The styles show up to your door in as little as two days. And when you're ready for new clothes, just swap them out and choose more styles. Like many of you, my personal style has evolved over the years. But if I want to try something new, sometimes it's hard to know what pieces will work for me. Rather than going to the mall for hours or spending too much money on pieces I might not like, Armoire allows me to rent high-quality designer clothes for any occasion. I can try styles I never considered before without worrying about the store's return policy, like a pair of faux leather pants for my new band. Of course, all of this sounds great, but what's even better is that it's a woman-founded business. You benefit from finding the perfect outfits, all while supporting a business that was built by women just like us. Right now, our listeners can give Armoire a try and get up to 50% off their first month. That's up to $125 off. Just visit armoire.style slash murder in the rain. That's armoire.style, A-R-M-O-I-R-E dot style slash murder in the rain, one word, to get up to 50% off your first month and never worry about what to wear again. Try Armoire today. To be able to look people in the eye, lie to them, and think they will believe him. Everything he does is for his own personal gain. He has no remorse for his actions. He shows that by his many requests for hearings. He's shown that since the last hearing, when he said that there will be no more legal action taken, regardless of the results of the hearing on March 20th, 2012. He also said he was sorry. The only thing he is sorry about is the fact that he got caught. And then he's been forced to make people believe that he's sorry. He's a liar. He's a rapist and a sodomizer. He's a cold-blooded murderer, and there's no doubt in my mind he'll reoffend. It's not fair to put potentially millions of decent and innocent people at risk by ever letting this monster out of prison. 
I don't understand the whole life sentence term. In my opinion, life should mean life, as in until he dies. You may notice that I refer to the person who murdered my sister as the monster. I do that because that's what he is. And I do not feel that he deserves any title respect, such as Mr., along with his given first name or last name. It doesn't matter how remorseful he claims to be. It doesn't matter how good he says he wants to be or plans to be. It's too late. Aaron's gone forever. She doesn't get to have a hearing to beg for a second chance in life. She doesn't get to have a panel of people to plead her case to. So we're all here, doing everything we can to keep her murderer behind bars. We do it for the millions of innocent people in this world. We do it for Aaron. It's hard. It's exhausting. It tears us apart. But we'll be here every single time. We will fight every time because we want to have faith in the justice system that they are there for the innocent, not the guilty. And we'll always do it for Aaron. April 1st, 2013, Aaron would have turned 40 years old. After the hearing that we had had here in March 2012, we felt that she deserved something. She deserved something more than just one or two of us stopping by here and there to bring her flowers. So we held a gathering at the cemetery and we covered her grave in flowers. And we brought her champagne. And we released 40 balloons into the sky. And we sang her happy birthday. But that's where we got to do it. And it's just not fair. So I beg you to please keep the person who stole my sister's life behind bars for as long as you can. Thank you. Thank you. So she overheard him requesting parole so that he could tell his family he loves them. And so before she started her statement, she's like, yeah, I would like to tell my sister yeah, that Yeah, so too. they all came prepared. I think most of her siblings came prepared with a letter. One of her brothers spoke off the cuff, and so you can hear that on Patreon. Uh, but she came with a letter. So then after sitting there and hearing Conrad Ingweiler talk about the crime and his feelings and what – and he, he does – she mentions like self-diagnose. He does speak about everything – with medical terminology and legal terminology, mm. he's clearly prepared for this. Yeah. Of course he's prepared for parole. He wants out. I get yeah. that. Um, but that, yeah, she kicked off what we didn't play was she had an introduction before her letter where she just shared her picture of her sister 
and said, yeah, I, you want to hug your family? I bet Aaron would want that too. And it just kind of gets you in the gut there. And, and it's like, did you do the legal stuff in prison so that you could show that you were trying to better yourself and you wanted to help fellow prisoners? Or was it so you would have all the tools in your tool belt so that when you went to parole, you could present yourself as like an ideal parole candidate? And that is my opinion. After listening to everybody's statement and reading and learning about this case, I fall in that yeah. in that bucket that I think it was for his own benefit. And sure, yeah. he can help people along the way, but he just wanted to get on parole early. Yeah, because you can, you know, hearing him talk about it, for me, it's like you can kind of understand, oh, if someone doesn't want to deal with emotions, they go a little robotic. Or maybe he's thought about it so many times over and over living with this that, like, it comes off stale. No. But then it's like, oh, no, this is a performance. Well, they ask him, and he's really only ever talked about the crime four times or something like that. It's not rehearsed in that dry, in that right. sense. I, I mean, maybe it is. I but... just mean, like, in his head, if he's, like... You know, oh, yeah. in, in his mean, cell and looking at the mirror every day of like, any, and then I any important this. event that you're going to have to speak at, mm-hmm. you're going to practice. So you can't hold that against someone. Oh, but no, yeah. I just mean that has he been waiting for this moment yes. so long that like now he has and it he down knows to ex- exactly what to say with the exception of that when they were looking for the emotional mm-hmm. reaction to the motivation of the, anything emotional, he could not connect with the board mm-hmm. on anything specific. Uh, about his health, about, you know, his incarceration, he can speak to. It's very clear. And you guys will hear that when he talks. And again, the nerve of uh, you you didn't play it, but you, you know, just telling us of like the nerve in front of these people to say, I just want to hug my family member again. I just want to tell them I love them. Yeah. How do you have the gall to be like, sorry for your loss, but I want. And also the the constant. (laughs) Listening to that, I'm just like, the weight of tragedy that exists in this world that is so constant and what people have to carry every day, not just the victim's family, but look at everyone involved, the parole board. They have to sit and and ingest all of that and then make a decision that could affect so many people's lives. What if we do let him out and he does something again? Like, there's just so much weight to all of this. It's just kind of unfathomable at times and just uh i don't know just the ugliness of all of it and 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 the family all these years later still having to say this was our sister here's why she mattered here's why this needs to happen and they're kind of fighting to take his life obviously in a very different way but that can't feel i don't know what emotion but it's like You want him gone and you want him locked away because of what he did, but you're still fighting to take that person's life away while their family is sitting there going, we just want to hug him. And you're going, no, Uh, it's just. The DA, two of Aaron's brothers, her father and her stepmother and her friend Laura all spoke to the board. And after their statements, you could hear the board member speaker get choked up at what they've heard. They have a hard job, no doubt about it. They are determining the future of a person, a human, a human who has made a mistake, perhaps made reparations or perhaps not. That's what they're there to determine. Does this person meet the criteria to get out of prison? 
So, of course, after Aaron's family gets the chance to color the meeting with a picture of who Aaron was and what Angweiler took from them and the trauma that their family has endured for over three decades because of this man's actions, they still have to allow Angweiler, the inmate, the monster, as her family calls him, to speak and react to their statements. So here's that portion. Buckle up. I'm uh, very sorry. Um, that's totally insufficient. Um, I've heard everything and um, deeply, deeply sorry. I don't, um, I'm afraid to say the wrong thing at this point. Um, but I'm remorseful and I'm very sorry and I'm sorry that I've pulled everybody through this, um, all the families involved here especially the Reynolds family. Um, I am so deeply sorry. Um, I know I have, um, I know my actions have continued to hurt the Reynolds family, um, and I've not. I'm, I'm sorry. One minute and 10 seconds. That's his reaction. I guess what could he say to appease them? Nothing. He told them, I hear you, which is what they wanted from the board to hear them, not just to listen. But one minute and 10 seconds definitely falls short from ripping a teenage girl away from her life. I feel like, well... I won't ever be in that position. But if someone, if I had hurt someone and they are telling me that I've hurt them or I'm in that position and I'm at a parole board and a family member is saying things to me of like how much hurt I've caused them, I don't know how you find it in you to continue to beg for your freedom and not go, you know what? You're I can right. wait here for four more years. I am a bad person. I have to live with this horrendous everything. Please lock me away for forever. Like, I don't know how you find that in you to be like, oh, man, <laughs> I'm sorry. But the fact that the board member was choked up and yeah. he wasn't really, yeah. really irks me. Yeah. Because in the beginning, as you know, I get in trouble for not crying sometimes. And so it's like. At the first one, I was like, I kind of get being robotic. I could get it. Yeah. I was like, he's had he's had this story but in not his brain for Beth. all these years. And to hear that and to not be like uh, vomiting or something, but just be like, I'm real sorry, guys. So the Oof. person who spoke on his behalf does claim that they witnessed him cry before. Angweiler was allowed to have someone speak on his behalf, and he chose Dr. Oren Bolstad. Now, this doctor didn't do therapy with Angweiler. He was actually hired by the state, the prosecution, during the trial. So he's had multiple interactions with him, and he knows the people who have given him therapy. Now, he spoke to the room claiming to be neutral, to stay factual. He said that he was very moved by Aaron's family, and he starts off describing his 
early perception of Angweiler as cold, a heartless child who he believed should be remanded to juvenile hall until he was of age and then remanded to adult prison. So he agreed with the ruling. But that changed over time for him. And he says he understands Angweiler more and that he has an empathy for him. And he does recognize that Angweiler is empathetic has remorse and a potential for rehabilitation. But I have to say, this guy pissed me off. He said something that I just couldn't overlook. So he mentions, quote, some people don't show their emotions uh, by crying, by blubbering. And yes, that's true. But the way he said that sounded so accusatory since her entire family yeah. was up there crying. It's like condescending. Right. And whether it was intended or not, like that rubbed me the wrong way. And I immediately discounted his years of education mm-hmm. uh, because it was just rude. Um, yeah, because if that's his opinion of what emotion being expressed is, then it's like maybe you're not the best judge of it. Also, it's really hard to believe that. Someone, a doctor could have a patient at 15 or 16 by the time he saw him and say he's violent and dangerous and like, yeah, put him away forever. And then all that's happened is he's been in the prison system and he's supposed to somehow gain empathy and gain sociability and gain uh, all of those skills that definitely don't exist in that. I mean, he does and he does speak to several people. People have told him that Angweiler has uh, displayed remorse. He's grown. He participated in programs in the prison that are aimed at restorative justice, at self-growth and basically saying that he highly supports him getting out on parole. He's even willing to spend a couple of sessions with him, even though he wasn't his therapist and that he will do well. In fact, he said he will do great. I don't know how I felt about that. I mean, it was smart of the defense to have him as a mm-hmm. wit- as someone that would speak mm-hmm. for you because he went in for the the prosecution. Yeah, but I don't know. It was just something sat weird with me with that. Yeah, and it's hard too when it's one person, when it's one specialist or one expert. It's like, could we get a couple opinions on that? Because they can be opinions. Again, if you're going to call it blubbering. That well, maybe and they speaks had to your opinion. Three psychiatrists evaluate him, and they all had a lot in common with the mixed personalities. Some thought he would reoffend; others weren't so sure. Um, but yeah, they are opinions. Educate, highly educated yes, opinions. Yes. Yeah. After this, unlike pro- ours. <laughs> After this parole hearing, the board goes back to evaluate the record to discuss and consider for quite some time. And when they came to a decision in this particular instance. It was successful for Ingweiler. That surprised a lot of people. And those of you who listened to the entire recording we're posting on Patreon, I will be very interested to hear your opinion just from that single meeting on what you think the outcome should have been. Keep in mind, Angweiler did nearly everything right in prison. He didn't instigate fights. He got an education. He worked as a legal assistant. He helped other inmates with advice. He even set up a job for when he would eventually get out on parole. What more can an inmate do, right? Well, it's remorse. I think back to episode 46, the beginning to her end, which was the case of Rena Verk, who was murdered by two of her peers, One culprit has failed miserably at showing remorse and the other did well. Her parents even forgave him and recognized everything he was doing to atone for what he had done. Whether someone processes emotions one way or another, I think remorse is one of the ones you can recognize no matter their communication style. And I'm not sure Conrad Engweiler 
ever showed it. And whether he did, whether he didn't, the board announced on September 2nd, 2014, he would be released on October 16th, 2014, after spending 24 years and eight months incarcerated of his 28-year minimum. In the exit interview, you hear the board say that if they grant parole, he will remain on parole and register as a sex offender for life. That means he has to always check with a parole officer, do urine analysis when asked, and keep a distance from children for the duration of his life. And yet, this year, he asked the board to end his parole. And that's when the Reynolds family reached out to me. Aaron's niece, who was a child at the time of her murder, asked if I'd be willing to cover her case on TikTok. This was kind of a last stretch hope to get people from the public to send a letter to the parole board. They were basically considering Engweiler's request and they were opening it to the public to get their opinion and they had a few days left and thought I could help. Now, at first, I wasn't sure if I should or not. Part of me was thinking, all these years I had this perception of this perpetrator doing things right on paper in prison. He was being rehabilitated and maybe he was dis deserving of a do-over in life, right? We talk about that. How we do. We talk about that all the time, especially with kid right. offenders. Yeah. And I, I do know someone who knows him and their perspective as a former inmate themselves is that he will do well out of prison. But then I educated myself a little bit more on this case and I listened to the family and a new picture began to form of a type of man who would get out of prison and would enter the workplace of one of Aaron's family members. He knew she worked there. That to me is someone who purposely inflicts pain again. Mm -hmm. He knew it would impact her. He knew it would affect her. And that is torture. So he just walked in unannounced. He lived in the town where she worked. Um, I don't know how that worked out. He was actually released to Deschutes County and happened to be uh, here nearby. Went into her work knowing perfectly well she worked there. She asked him to leave. She said he smiled at her mm. and she had to get her manager to ask him to leave. And that to me is just someone who enjoys uh, hurting someone. That's the people that send the letter to families. You know, we talk about those people uh -huh. where it's like for no reason. And also him fighting to be done with parole. If he had gotten out when he was supposed to, that's only three years of parole. Oh, no, no, no. You would have to be on parole for life no matter what. Right. That's what I mean. Like, even if he had served oh. his whole sentence, that's still only three years. But OK, so he got out early. So he got, you know, four extra years or whatever. That, no, no. You're and paroled asked, for a vicious, horrendous murder. In the parole, you under, do you understand that if we let you out on parole, that you are on parole, parole. for life? And he said yes. And then he was like, actually, um, I'm a jail lawyer now, so we're going to fight this. They also asked him, what would you like to do? And he said, I know I can't, but I would like to help children in my position. And he's like, but I know I have to register as a sex offender, so I'm not going to be able to do that. So it's like you understand, but you clearly have your own plan around yeah. it. Yeah. And you're not, again, that narcissism of like, well, rules are for those people. So maybe Aaron's family is right. And he formed this parole image of someone who does everything right, speaks the lingo the board wants to hear. He presented a dry, unemotional, detached, somber appearance in his exit interview. And he said it was because, quote, that's the way I keep from falling apart. That's how I can get through this. Sure. OK, but maybe that's not true. 
maybe that is just who he is. Mm -hmm. So I did do the video. And what ultimately made me do the video is this. He has done his time. Yes, he applied for parole and it was granted. Okay, that's the rules. But the law said parole was for life. And while I was incredibly moved by this family and I wanted to ask for those letters, it was because it's part of justice, not because I empathize with them. I do. But it was because those are the rules. Mm -hmm. You don't get to just ride into the sunset and live your life. You need to you need to remember what you did. And it's for the public safety mm -hmm. that you remain on parole. For and you life. agreed to it. When you were leaving, you agreed to those terms. I learned from the family there were nearly 30 letters from non-family members sent in. And on October 15th, 2021, Beth announced on the Remembering Aaron Tona Reynolds Facebook group that his request was denied. He will remain on parole for now. But who knows when he might make this request again, dragging the family back through hell. I hope that it can be a real simple one and that they can point to whatever that parole contract is. And yeah, he was I think first so. going. I hope like he can request that and they can go, see right here where you signed on the dotted line. Here's the thing though. For life. If the law ever changes, right. he is back through that door. That's what he did with his sentencing. Yeah. You know, should they should have probably stuck to that 30 year minimum in the first place. Mm -hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, he's the type of person he's going to look it up every year. Check and the that's law. the thing. There are so many cases that people are in prison for where they're wrongly convicted or they had one joint on them and they're doing 20 years or they really have rehabilitated and they're working on like there are so many other cases where if the law is going to change and that means sentences are going to change. Why do you put the effort first and foremost into someone that did something so awful. Well, I can tell you why. He has a good lawyer. He comes from a wealthy family and oh. has a good lawyer. And that lawyer has his back. It's a Lake Oswego lawyer. Oh, I mean, of it. course, anytime there is any movement in the law, yeah. they will be there filing an appeal. Now, this really gets me. So in the parole hearing, so I think this took place over two different dates. Like it started uh, earlier in the year. And then the recording I have was from, I think I said May. They ask him like a lot of questions. Where where do you see yourself in fear? What do you want to do? Do you want to have a relationship? And he says, I am not ready for a relationship. I need to put my sobriety first. And it's a great answer. It's a great answer to the board of parole. And Guess he what? Had a girlfriend within. Oh, no, no, no. A corrections officer came forward and said, That's shit. Every week a woman comes here and they kiss. He Flat out fucking lied. And for that parole board to grant him parole when he After, yeah. didn't answer their questions, he does not show, show remorse or any emotion. And he lied to their faces. That should be an automatic. Automatic they had already denial. Granted it. I know. It really, really bothered me. That's so He's, He is an incessant liar. And I don't think that's ever going to stop. Now, one thing I want to point out, because I think... I don't know. It's logical, but we don't always think about it. So I wanted to just bring it up. We have had several legislatures here in Oregon in, that is attempting to change the disparity between sentencing people of different races. So in the past, we've seen this happen a lot where someone who's black or Mexican might get prison time for second degree assault. But if that person is white, they get 
probation. Yeah. So they they've changed this and they have like sentencing guidelines. So if you did crime A, this is the minimum. You like this is what you get. And mm-hmm. it's it's been trying to fix that, right? But here we have Conrad Angweiler, who is white and comes from a home of privilege in Lake Oswego where people have money. And he had three different sentences. And the one thing they all had in common, I just held up four fingers, guys. That's funny. The (laughs) one thing they had in common is they were all the maximum terms. Okay. So they, every time he was sentenced, the court believed he should get the maximum. Yet they let him out early for credits for good behavior. And I think this is why families of victims get so mad. I mean, they already feel like justice isn't served by the original sentence, right? Like their their loved one's life was taken away. But when we do that, it's like taking their justice away. Yeah. And it, it makes them think like, is this criminal more important than my loved one? And I personally feel like we should take away credits for good behavior. Am I so wrong about that? I don't think so. I think it can be that there should be something because you want them to be safe when they're in prison and you want that kind of that behavior. That is a very so you good do point. want it to be. But couldn't it be a sliding scale of you right. get between this five like, here's your minimum, but if you're really good... Especially when you have people with personality disorders, like this dude who's willing to do anything for his own sake, you can fake the good as long as you need to. Or, or like, incentivize like that, you them know? differently. Give yeah. them better living accommodations or better food or something. Like, I just... Trying to put myself, I know I cannot fully empathize with Aaron's family, but put yourself in their shoes. You hear he's going away for a minimum of 30 years. Okay, 30 years, I can learn to live with that as justice. Yeah, and then he's going to be almost 50, and there you go. That's like his life. You might accept it or you might just learn to live with it. Yeah. But then they say, oh, he's getting out four years early because he's a real good boy. What do you think that makes them feel? Mm -hmm. Like that is just the constant revictimization. I yeah, this case really drove that home for me. Like how hard they work every mm-hmm. day of their lives for something up the Facebook group they didn't sign up for. No, he did. Like she said, you know, you chose those actions. He chose those actions, and now they're roped into it for life. And then how dare he have the audacity to ask it off early? Yeah, and that's the thing. He said, you know, he appealed when he was in the juvenile detention center, mm-hmm. and then he said he made a. a agreement with himself that he would never appeal again and he didn't the rest of his sentence other than like the whole Oregon legislature but the parole he did like he constantly filed paperwork and you can if you google his name you will see so many appeals so many Ingweiler versus the prison person if you're feeling like you're doing such a good job and you've turned your life around and you've done all these things how do you not then accept that as part of your responsibility you know, how do you not go, hey, I wish I didn't have that, but I also wish I hadn't killed that person. So I'll just bite the bullet and, mm-hmm. and live this life or I have to knock on my neighbor's doors and tell them who I am and I got to have certain jobs. And yep. you can't even do that. You can't even. So, again, where it's like that's not helping your case. Yeah. You know, because in the beginning, it's like, oh, man, it's kids and it's bad and it's awful. And, and then it's like. This son of a bitch. But rewind a few weeks ago when I didn't know some of this stuff. He, to me, 
kept his nose clean. He yeah. has a family. He hasn't gotten into any trouble. And he seems like he he did his job in prison and learned how to be a good person. And then you learn the little details mm-hmm. of the things that aren't in the media. Mm-hmm. And you hear how he talks about it and you see his demeanor. And everyone who looks at a photo of him and goes, I can tell by his eyes, which is no. bullshit. You can't really. No. But I don't know. We hear that about Ted Bundy that you could. So Well, it's also like. You know what else, who else was a really good kid that never had violence? Him before he murdered someone. Mm-hmm. And he was cute so, as a button, you guys. You look at a photo, you're like, oh, yeah, it's like Macaulay Culkin with like JTT, like very yeah. cute 90s kid. So and he to say like, oh, he's been her. good all this time. Well, he was before, too. Yep. So where's the difference? Yeah, this one, it's hard. And I really, I feel for her family and I appreciate them sharing the recordings with us and talking to me. I know it's very hard and, you know, I'm going to say here's the episode, but I'm going to warn them what's in it because I I do speak graphically, which we try not to do when we know a family is going to be listening. But I think it's important to understand why there's outrage that he got out early. Yeah. Because I feel that. Yeah. Did they, do you know, did they have to be in the room when the parole board was like, here's our decision? I'm actually, Is that all in the same moment? I'm not moment? sure. So I think they, I'm not sure if they have it in the room, but I know they're contacted and told. I can't imagine sitting there. Taking, and having to look them in the face. Yeah, taking in that information, having it affect you so deeply, sitting here with the person that did it. And then looking at them and saying he gets more time in life. I'm surprised by it because so she was so emotionally affected. And then another board member, and I can't remember which guy it was. Mm. You could tell he was not having Conrad's replies. He was like, no, you this isn't what I asked you. And he interrupted. There was a couple of parts where he (laughs) he's telling what happened to the crime and he takes a long pause. So the speaker and I'm so sorry, I'm forgetting her name. It's in the sources. She goes to talk and he goes, I'm not done. If you if you will, I'm I'm not done. <laughs> and I was like, excuse me? I would have said something if I was that yeah. board member. Like, sir, don't talk to me like that. Yeah. And so one of the board members, you Be could like, tell. like, oh, cool. You still have respect for women, apparently. Denied. Like, well, and the, men, the man was pissed. You could tell he wasn't satisfied with the answers. He kept going back to what is the motive. So I was pretty shocked that they actually That's let wild. him out early. I like, wonder if they... 2018 wasn't that far away. No, not at all. Yeah. <laughs> I t- I'm baffled by it. Like, couldn't you appease the family they, a little bit here? Do they... Do parole boards... Sorry to, like, pop quiz you on parole boards. Do they have, like, um, you know how the Supreme Court releases their decision and, like, explains why? Yes. Do they have something like that where they're like, we have decided based on... It's more like... It's more like a checkbox. It's more okay. like he meets the criteria. So basically, they can't be emotionally disturbed. So they they have basically said, okay, he, you know, he's not the perfect emotion we're looking for. But you but can he doesn't go down the list issue. and go, he he's wasn't logical. violent in jail. He, he has uh, the primary one was he had a post parole plan. He knew mm. he had a job. He knew where he was going to live. He knew how he was going to keep his sobriety. So all that stuff he answered perfectly. So I don't think they had a real reason to say no. So he it, did all that lawyer work, found out what they're looking for. And that I gotta I gotta think that's why. It was yeah. that they had no red flag to say no and they had to versus Which makes sense that you would have a check sheet because it would be emotional. And you don't want three, four, five people judging a book by its cover and going 
Oh yeah, he definitely is still a I bad know, guy. But I do but think there is a component like, that has to yeah. be considered. And that's why I wanted to talk about this case and share the the parole recordings because we don't often see that or hear that. We're forced to see an opinion piece, mm-hmm. right? Written about something that happened unless we can get our hands on police reports and mm-hmm. um, court transcripts and things which we try to do as often as we can, but it's a very interesting way to look at it. Yeah. And it's like you said, you started out knowing of this case in such a different manner. Mm-hmm. I mean, I even did in from the start of this was like, okay, well, let's hear out, yeah. you know, what the info is so we know what we're working with, but it it just it's doesn't a whole make, picture. Why not even give him the 30 years? That's what I'm saying. Give That's, him the full That alone sentence. is baffling, let alone everything else if you take away all the other process. But the family, if the family, I don't think, would have been mad if he served his full sentence. Sure, they would have been mad that he was trying to get off parole. But they're like, yeah, he filled his sentence. That was the expectation from the beginning. What's a couple more years? We have nothing. I'll probably of stay up person. at night thinking about this for a few days because it really bothers me. So he's just out in Portland now, I living think, his life. I think he's in like the Bend area, mm. Redmond. I honestly don't know, but allegedly, he, he's still on parole with Deschutes County. So he's likely mm. either he has to check in there or he's living there. Right. But he has family in Lake Oswego and Portland. So there you have it. Um, but. He's still on parole and yeah, you hopefully know, for a very long time. But feel free to check out the TikTok video if you want. Um, I know some of her family has commented on it. Yeah. And and that's an interesting I mean, that's a very interesting way to look at a case because we do talk about parole all the time and we're all like we're always like baffled usually. And so that's really um Well now we know they have the psychiatric file, right. they have their what they've done in prison. They have to know what the prisoner has done to prepare for life outside of prison. Right. So they basically a list of like how often you've gone to group. What are you doing to hold your sobriety? You know, so it's that's comforting because yeah. I didn't know what they see. Yeah. So it's yeah, it's interesting to hear it all there and just to ask a family to keep its composure while giving space to someone like that is... I'm amazed by them. Like, the way that yeah. they... So the the niece, you know, I could tell she was emotional. Her sister, you can tell, has talked about it so much. She's able mm-hmm. to talk about it without... Right. But, um, I pre- yeah, I appreciate them yeah. being open to talking yeah, to me. Yeah, and sharing this mm-hmm. audio because that's not something yeah, you we normally get, get insight on. So to be able to hear it and like kind of hear each component of it yeah. um, really kind of paints a different picture. So I think we'll put it on Patreon for any level. Yeah. So dollar or more. That way, you, if you have access to it, if you're interested, um, I wouldn't want to like gatekeep this for yeah. yeah too long. But there you go. Thank you for listening. Yeah. And thank you to that family for reaching out to you and for sharing that story. Oh, and I have a little note I should probably announce here. Uh, we completed our Gracie Garcia uh, fundraiser. Oh, yes. I, I was waiting to hear. Just made the donation today. So through Venmo and PayPal and then the direct, um, de- I want to say deposit. <laughs> what is the word I'm looking for? The oh, and the direct donation to GoFundMe. Okay. You made... might want to take okay. that over. <laughs> I mean, you can leave that if you want. (laughs) All right. So looking at the donations through Venmo, PayPal, and the direct ones to GoFundMe, we made about $1,000 for Gracie Ella. Oh, that's awesome. So thank you to everyone that donated. That's great. Thank you, guys. 
please be aware, like we've not even scratched the surface. They have a long way to go. So continue to share the episode, share her story, tag donate your friends. You yeah. We really, really appreciate you being being willing to donate to the family. I know they appreciate it a lot. So yeah. And if you. anyone uh, we've been in contact with a private investigator, but distance makes it difficult. So um, if anyone listening knows someone that does that kind of work, um, in please. Eastern Oregon. Yeah. In Eastern Oregon. Please feel free to reach out to us and we can connect you with the family, too. So that's great. I know. I was very Yay, You guys so are I the made best. The, made the donation today and I went through all of the latest ones. It was very exciting to see names I recognize yeah. of listeners and people have emailed us. And it's been it's been uh, cool to see everyone. So come if together. people want to, you know, I know people often listen in chunks where they binge uh, chunks of episodes um, since we have given our donation uh you can go directly forward, to go fund me them? Okay. yeah and it doesn't look like they i saw some five dollar donations so i don't think they're making you donate 10 now if it by chance comes to us again we will yeah donate you can it. put it just put a note it's fine but do that. note that Ven venmo and paypal take a little tiny percentage yeah. of it so if you go directly to gofundme that's better yeah awesome thank you guys You're yeah the best. thank you we do have the best listeners I hope that recorded. <laughs> Can you imagine? I double checked, but it was not. Okay, good. While Oregon changed the sentencing of Conrad Angweiler, uh, let's just keep the first one. Fuck <laughs> it. <laughs> it's fine. We're good. <laughs> you know that wasn't good enough but it's also as good as it's gonna get i don't know why I, maybe i'll try it again at the end there you go. murder in the rain is produced and edited by josh mccullough written and hosted by emily rowney and alicia holland artwork by jamie costa music by kai pfeiffer at kyfifer.com Check out our website, murderintherain.com, for additional information on all cases, a fun interactive map, and be sure to subscribe so you can receive our newsletter. Check out the Mad Props page for coupon codes from some of our sponsors. We love your reviews and seeing them on all streaming platforms, especially iTunes. And check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And suck my balls. <laughs> Please put that in. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>